Okay, good afternoon. It is so great to get together yet again for another Cafe Kesher Senior Luncheon. I'd like to uh, especially thank uh, Sarah Fakey Berkowitz from the Show Office for spearheading the uh, catering aspect of this, um, as well as her devoted volunteers, Sheila Elkon, Betsy Sanker, Doreen Wittenberg, and Leah Rodbell. Thank you all for the time you put into making this uh, beautiful luncheon happen. And a very, very special thank you to our sponsors this month, Jack and Pam Williams. Uh, we appreciate your generous sponsorship. And invite anyone else who wants the great merit of bringing people together uh, for this kind of lunch to contact the show office to be a sponsor in the future. i just like to acknowledge that I, I, know, uh, I know some of us here uh, in, the, in a few hours from now will be participating in a funeral of a, uh, a young woman in our community, so I want to make sure to acknowledge that. Uh, any Torah learning that, um, in the broader, broader community, any Torah learning that we do today should be a merit for her, for her soul, and um, only good things uh, for all of us uh, from this point on. I'll tell you after, it's n not, nobody right here, peripherally. Okay, yeah, not from this one. Okay, uh, Shelf, I know many of you attended Nachliel Selavan's The Museum Guy, uh, his, his uh, presentation about Hanukkah. By show of hands, how many people were there? My nephew. Some of you, and he is Marsha's nephew. Okay, um, so that excellent presentation, as it always is, covered a lot of the story of Hanukkah, which was initially what I was hoping to talk about, but I will talk about it with something of a twist. Now, those of you who have heard me speak before about Hanukkah know that I am very fond of starting off any story of Hanukkah, any retelling, any Dvar Torah about Hanukkah with the following story, and you'll soon see why. So those who have heard it, please humor me. Roughly 15 years ago, it was a letter to the editor that was printed in the Jerusalem Post from a woman who lived in New Jersey who, around this time of year, in December, had her grandson, her five-year-old grandson, visiting her during this time of year from Israel. And she was in the mall with her grandson, and her grandson noticed that there was a crowd of children around his age gathered around a large, plump man with a white beard, waiting in line to receive something from Santa in the mall. This was in New Jersey. I'm sorry? If it was here, we'd know who it was. Right, this was in New Jersey. So, he, uh, uh, so the grandson said to his grandma, he said, I'd like to also wait in line. I'd like to also see what that is. And his grandmother said, well, it's really not such a Jewish thing. Maybe we don't have to do it. He insisted. He threw a bit of a fuss. And she said, okay, okay, you'll get in line with all the other kids. You'll see what's going on. So the young uh, boy waited in line. Uh, finally, it was his turn. Santa picked him up, uh, gave him a big hug, and said, of course, Merry Christmas. And uh, this boy looked him in the eye and said, well, actually, I'm Jewish, and I'm from Israel, and I don't celebrate Christmas, I celebrate Hanukkah. The grandmother was understandably a little bit uncomfortable until this Santa Claus gave the boy a big hug, and in Hebrew, said to him, Kol HaKavod, way to go. My name is Yuval, I live in Ramat Gan, I'm here in the United States to make some extra money, and I'm proud of you for standing up for your true identity. True story. Cute. Yeah. It's a cute story, and the reason I'm telling this to you is that this time of year, right, it's typically known as the holiday season. A lot of times you see somebody, you say happy holiday. They could be celebrating one of several holidays. 
they're Jewish, Hanukkah, Christian Christmas, there are other holidays that are being celebrated this time of year uh, that have emerged over, over, the, over the years. And so society, the society that we know, is celebrating a variety of different holidays. And it is very easy to conflate Hanukkah with some of those other holidays. And I'm very well aware that there are... Um, uh, uh, oh, sorry, Jenny, okay? Okay. It's easy to conflate Hanukkah with, with other holidays. And, and we're not here to put down other holidays at all. And we're not only going to be talking about how Hanukkah... Thank you. Whoa, that's great. Very strong. I'm not here to say um, only that Hanukkah is different from the other holidays being celebrated by other religions in the United States right now. But also Hanukkah, Hanukkah is different from all the other Jewish holidays we celebrate as well. And the reason is that unlike, certainly unlike the non-Jewish holidays being celebrated this time of year, but not only in contrast to them, but even in contrast to the other Jewish holidays that we celebrate the rest of the year, Hanukkah stands out and is different. And that is because the core story of Hanukkah, that a small band of men rose up against a strong empire and defeated them and restored service to the temple is a matter of historical record. It is an empirical historical fact that no one denies. The same cannot be said about the great story of the Exodus from Egypt. There are different narratives for exactly which pharaoh it was. There's no contemporary uh, written description of exactly how it happened, except of course for the Torah, right, which we believe was passed down from that time period. But there's no other sources, outside sources. Um, same is true even fast forward many, many, many years to the story of Purim. There are disputes amongst historians and academics and Jewish scholars. Who exactly was Ahasuerus from the Purim story? There are different opinions. And exactly what year did it happen? We don't really know. But Hanukkah stands on its own as a holiday that everybody agrees that the basic storyline happened as a matter of historical record. You can be an atheist, you do not have to believe in God, but you have to acknowledge that the basic story of Hanukkah occurred and that the, the, the reason behind why we celebrate Hanukkah is based on something that is a historical fact. And so we know that, for example, that well, we, we just said, we just mentioned Purim, right? So after Persia was the great empire of the world, this is now I think fuzzier than before, we're good? After Persia was the great empire, they were defeated by the great conqueror named, many historians, Alexander the Great, that we know. We know Alexander the Great uh, um, spread out, conquered all of the ancient world. He eventually died. His various generals divided up his empire. They uh, separated it into various sub-empires. And uh, fast forward 120 years or so, and in the land of Israel is where the Hanukkah story takes place in the Seleucid section, right, the Syrian section of the Greek Empire, and we know the name of the king who, well, the wicked king who did to the Jews a terrible thing, Antiochus IV, right? Antiochus IV, we know what his name was, we know what he looks like. If you take out your smartphone now and you Google, purchase a coin of Antiochus IV on eBay.com, you will be able to find a coin with a picture of Antiochus IV on it. And so you can you can buy a coin, you know what he looked like. It's not debated. We also know what the battles, the basic battle lines in the Hanukkah story took place. We know the years. In the year 168, the Syrian Greeks, Antiochus' men, and along with uh, Jewish turncoats, they put up a statue in the uh, temple, 
and we know that they started offering sacrifices to that statue, which led in the year 167 to a man named Matetio, who lived in the town of Modi'in, to launch a revolt with his sons, and uh, that and they fled from there to northeast to the hills of Govna. Okay, they fled from there northeast. We know exactly what happens, and those who were at Nachliel's uh, talk will understand what I'm saying. You don't have to. I'm, I'm going through this relatively fast to get to my main point, so don't worry if you're missing anything. Right? We know that first, and we know that. Uh, that the first battle of the uh, Maccabees against the Syrian Greeks took place in, in, a, in an area called Wadi Haramia, which is north of Ramallah today. We know the second battle took place in Beit Choron, which is uh, roughly, which is southwest of that, closer to Lod Airport. Uh, we know that there was a massive battle right after that in Emos, which is right near where Beit Shemesh is today. And then we know that there was a subsequent battle in Beit Sur, which is Gush Etzion is today. And that led to the Jews being able to retake the temple, rededicate the temple, exactly three years to the day from that date that they that they sacrificed these offerings to an idol in the temple they were able to take back the temple rededicate it on the 25th of Kislev right what we call Hanukkah they were able to rededicate the Kislev, uh, the, the temple in the year 165 exactly three years later and so no other Jewish holiday has this level of accuracy of historical record that backs up the story other than Hanukkah. So therefore, I submit that Hanukkah is different, certainly from the other holidays being celebrated by non-Jews around this time, but it's also, truth is, different from the other Jewish holidays that we celebrate in that, in that regard. So, how do we know? What are the sources? What are the sources for the story of Hanukkah, and how do we know it? Before we get to that, I want to ask you all a question. So on Sunday night, we're going to be uh, lighting our menorah, for the first night of Hanukkah, and we say, how many blessings? Anybody know how many blessings you make on the first night? Three blessings, right? Lahad l'kner shal Hanukkah, sha'asa nisim l'avoseinu, right? And then the third one is shachiyanu, right? Which we only make on the first night. And then we start lighting our menorahs, and custom for the past 800 years has been to sing a song while lighting the menorah. What is that song? Ma'oz Sur. The Ma'oz Sur song it is widely believed to have been written during the times of the Crusades around the 13th century. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, our people have been singing this song. Ma'oz Sur is a, several stanzas which go through the dark history of anti-Semitism. Right? Remember, this was being written during the Crusades, so you can imagine what's going through their minds. They're remembering that the anti-Semitism they're experiencing at the hands of the Crusades is not the first time that we've experienced this. It goes back to the times of Paro in Egypt. And then it continues, and, and, the, and each stanza talks about another uh, group of anti-Semites who rose up against our people, the Babylonians, the Persians, with the Hanukkah story, and then it gets to the Greeks, who rose up against the Jews. Now, if you look at the words of that particular stanza, so it says, Yevanim nikbitzu alai, the Greeks gathered up against us, against me, against the Jewish people, right? Azai bimechashmanim, in the times of the Hasmoneans, and then the next words are, for extra points, who knows? Anybody know? Ufartsu chomos migdalai. Right? Very good. Ufartsu chomos migdalai. Now, what do those words mean? Ufartsu breached. They breached. They made a hole in. Chomos, the walls of migdalai, my towers. And then it continues to talk about the story of the oil and how the oil lasted eight days, etc. 
There's a big question to be asked about these three words, Ufartsu, Chomos, Migdalai, because one of the things we know from the historical records about Hanukkah is that the Greeks' method in imposing their anti-Semitism against our people was not a method of brute force and destruction. They did not roll into Jerusalem and destroy the city. They didn't destroy the temple. They had no interest in destroying the temple. They wanted to maintain our city intact. They wanted to maintain the temple intact, but all they wanted was for us to be more open to being part of the larger human uh, experience and assimilate with others who were part of the Hellenist Greek culture. That's all they wanted. And um, this is clear from the historical record from that time period. Um, actually, the Rambam, Maimonides, has a letter that he wrote, Letter to Yemen. Letter to Yemen was written to the Jewish community of Yemen who was experiencing anti-Semitism, and the Rambam, Maimonides, lists different kinds of anti-Semitism. Talks about the Romans and the Babylonians did come in with an iron fist to destroy Jerusalem. The Greeks did not. They had no interest in destroying Jerusalem. Interestingly, he talks about how Christian anti-Semitism actually deployed both kinds of anti-Semitism and discusses how that plays out, but that's for another time. Uh, but clearly the Greeks did not try to destroy Jerusalem or the temple. So therefore, when we talk about breaching the walls during the Hashmonayim, during the times of the Hanukkah story, what is that talking about? There's no basis at all for walls being breached that we know of. Hear the question? Anybody have any, any thoughts, any answers? Spiritual, metaphorical, very nice. That's all, you can always go to that kind of answer. Yes, Larry? Um, the uh, wall around the uh, they broke at 13 pounds. Oh, very good, that's the answer. Good, Larry is in the advanced, uh, the advanced class. We're gonna get to that, very good. Any other? Can uh, you uh, repeat the answer? I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna repeat it in, with a lot more context in a second. Um, any other theories, yeah. Got it. So again, not not literal. No walls were actually breached. You're saying it was figurative breach breach of our people's uh, spiritual integrity, whatever, that kind of thing. Okay. So let's look at some of the sources. How do we know about the story of Hanukkah? So Hanukkah happened. The miracle of the uh, of the of the military victory happened in the year 165, 164, right? It continued, the Hasmonean dynasty wound up lasting for close to 200 years. After the, unfortunately, after the children of Matisio, Yehuda and his brothers, the rest of the Hasmonean dynasty was pretty much uh, um, uh, a study in, in some of the most uh, wicked uh, leaders our people have ever had, unfortunately, very tragic, with a few, very few exceptions. And so how do we know about what happened there? So the answer is, the short answer is, that there is a book called the Book of Maccabees. The Book of Maccabees, one and two, um, have been preserved for roughly 2,200 years. And these books were written roughly a generation or two after the Hanukkah story. And Maccabees, one and two, tells all the story of Hanukkah in great detail, with different var few variations here and there, but they tell the story of the Jewish people rising up against uh, the Syrian Greeks and defeating them. Now, if you read the book of Maccabees 1 and 2, you'll see that they were actually written by God-fearing, patriotic Jews who wanted to write down the story of Hanukkah, which begs the question, why do we not have that as part of our holy books? And the answer, of course, is that the Tanakh, right, the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, the 24 books, the canon of, of, the, of the Torah, of Tanakh, 
was sealed after the after the Purim story, and that was it. Once Tanakh was sealed, from that point on, there are no more books that have the level of holiness of the Tanakh. But at the same time, there was a development of what was called the Oral Torah. Right? There's a basic belief that in addition to the written Torah given at Mount Sinai, there was an Oral Torah, and that was passed down, of course, orally for many, 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 many years until in the year, roughly in the year 180 of the Common Era, Rabbi Yudah Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, wrote it down in the first body of written down uh, oral Torah. is called the Mishnah. Okay? And then from that point on, we started writing things down. Then we had the Talmud, and then we have everything else, and, and here we are. Right? So the earliest, the, 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 the most accurate records of the Hanukkah story are from the Book of Maccabees 1 and 2, which interestingly were preserved mostly by the Christians. If one were to open a Christian Bible, which... Um, you will see in certain most denominations, certainly the Catholic and other denominations of Christianity, more traditional ones, there is what they call the Old Testament, which is what we call the, the 24 books of the Torah, the Tanakh. And then you have the New Testament. But right in the middle, they have something called the Apocryphal books. The Apocryphal books are books that were written. In, in Hebrew, we call them Sfarim Hachitzonim, the outside books. These are, th these are books that didn't make it into the canon. They didn't make it into Tanakh. And there are a whole bunch of them. In a, so some of them are the book of Maccabees. So just because they're in the book of, just because they're part of the apocryphal books doesn't mean they're not accurate. It just means they are not divinely inspired. Right? It just means that they, and so the, so in, so interestingly, this particular, the detailed story of Hanukkah was actually preserved because it was part of many Christian Bibles and the apocryphal books. Now as an aside, why, why are Christians so interested in having a bridge between what they call the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes? Exactly, right? The New Testament, right, in the best case scenario, takes place 300 or 400 years after the last story in Tanakh. And so there's an awkward gap, right, after which, from, from the point in which the Jews claim the story, right, the divinely inspired biblical narrative is over, and when Christians claim it, pick, it, it got picked up again. So if they can fill it in with apocryphal books, the book of the story of Hanukkah and some other books, it looks like there's a continuum of this like biblical story that continues up and up and through the times of Jesus. But uh, Jewish tradition has it all ending um, after at the end of Tanakh. So uh, so we have these books and um, they're great reads and they're hundred percent considered to be uh, uh, aligned with you know Jewish uh, attitudes towards what happened. Um, but uh, that's pretty much that's pretty much it up until of course you would think that Jews would start writing about the Hanukkah story when we first started writing down our oral law, and that is the Mishnah. But as we know, right, the Mishnah, when the Mishnah was written down by Rabbi Yudah Anasi, he divided up all of his condensed version of the oral Torah into six sections, or six orders of the Mishnah. Some of you may have heard the term Shas. Have you ever heard the term Shas, to learn Shas? I don't know how many of you know this, but Shas is an acronym. Shin Samach. Shin stands for Shisha, six. And, and the Samach is Darim, orders, the six orders, right? There are six orders of the oral law that were written down. One of them has to do with holidays. It's called Moed. It has to do with holidays, and every holiday gets a tractate, including Purim, including Sukkot, including Yom Kippur even has its own tractate, laws of Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. You have um, uh, Pesach, of course, right? But noticeably, aside from Shavuos, which doesn't really have any laws except how to make cheesecake, right? <laughs> 
Uh, that's the only holiday that doesn't have its own track day. But noticeably absent is the celebration of the holiday that was most recent for those who were putting together the Mishnah, and that is Hanukkah. There is no tractate about Hanukkah anywhere in the Mishnah, which was just which was written. Uh, let's see, the Mishnah was written in the year 180. The Hanukkah story was in the year 165 BCE, right? So I don't know who could do the math here, right? It's only a few hundred years apart, and there are a lot of laws about Hanukkah: where to light your menorah, how to light your menorah, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, material to use to light your menorah, and it doesn't appear anywhere in the Mishnah. You have to wait until the Talmud, a few hundred years later, when a Mishnaic era text is quoted that tells you kind of what happened in the Hanukkah story in, in, uh, in, in, with very little detail. So it's not there. It's not in the Mishnah. Now, there are different theories that have been advanced for why it's not in the Mishnah. Uh, the one that sounds like it makes uh, the most sense is that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is writing the Mishnah only 100 plus years after the... Uh, great revolt of the Jews against the Romans, which ended with the destruction of the temple, right? And after that time, there were two other revolts, um, culminating in the Bar Kokhba revolt, only 50 years before the Mishnah was written. And so he had an interest in downplaying the stories of Jews taking up arms and in a fight for national uh, for liberation against uh, occupying empires. He's sitting there in a Roman-controlled Judea writing about it, so maybe he didn't want to emphasize the story of Jews fighting against uh, occupying power. Um, but it's not there. With, we are told, two exceptions. There are two references to Hanukkah, which are in the Mishnah. One of them is uh, a question involving a camel that has flax on its back that happens to swipe a Hanukkah menorah that's lit and it bring, causes a whole building to catch on fire. Who's responsible for the damages? The person who owns the menorah? Or the guy who has the camel with the flax, well, who's responsible? It doesn't say anywhere that you need to have a menorah at all. It just talks about it. Another, another uh, Mishnah that references Hanukkah has to do with the latest time by which you're allowed to bring your first fruits to the temple. But that's it. You would think. So I'm here to say that there is actually one other reference, and it's what Larry said. And it doesn't say Hanukkah directly, but it's going to answer the question for this stanza of Ma'oz Tzur that talks about breaching the walls, which didn't happen. The walls of Jerusalem were not breached. The walls of the temple seemingly were not breached. So what was it? So there's a Mishnah, there's a tractate. One of the six orders of the Mishnah is called Kachim, which has to do with the laws of the temple, the offerings in the temple, the, arche the, um, the, um, uh, the outline, the, uh, the blueprints, the plans for the temple, how that works. One of the, and one of the tractates is called Midos, which has to do with the measurements of where everything was positioned in the temple. And in that, and in that tractate, it, taught, it mentioned something about the courtyard. The courtyard in the temple, it's called the Azara, says that there was a wall there called the Soreg Wall. The Soreg Wall was there, and during, it says, during the Greek occupation of the temple, they made 13 breaches in this wall. After the Hasmoneans retook control of the temple, they fixed the 13 breaches of the wall. And they instituted that whenever a person pass, passes one of these patched up breaches of the wall, they should bow down and praise God for the great miracle of fixing the wall. Wow, we have a reference to walls that were breached. It's right there in the Mishnah. Now, why did they choose to breach these walls? These were people who had no interest, as we said, in destroying the physical uh, walls of Jerusalem and destroying the defenses of the temple. Why did they breach this particular wall? Yes, coach. 
It was actually much further out than the Kodesh Kodeshim. It was much further uh, closer to the entrance to the compound. That's a good uh, guess, Larry. Um, because they wanted to uh, eliminate, that, that was the limit up to where the going could go. There you go. Very nice, right? So what is this wall? So what's cool about this wall, the Sorig wall, anybody here who knows Hebrew, Sorig means woven. It was a woven wall, like a kippas ruga, a woven yarmulke, right? It's a wo low woven wall. And the Mishnah tells us it was only 10 handbreadths tall, which is around three feet tall. So it was clearly not defensive at, at all, right? It didn't keep anybody out. Um, but what was the purpose of this wall? So the commentaries tell us that this wall served to mark the point at which Gentiles had to stop. Non-Jews were welcome to the temple and invited to the temple, right? As the prophet Yeshaya says, right? God says that my house is a place of prayer for all of humanity, right? We say it during the high holidays. And we invite non-Jews to come to the temple and they came Many, many of them came. But there was a point at which they had to stop. And there was a sign that was posted in the local, in the language of the time. During the time, end of the Second Temple era, it was in Greek. That said, non-Jews not allowed past this point. If you proceed, your blood is on your head. That was the language, right? Basically, you cannot go past this point. And now what's cool, what's interesting, is that there are very few archaeological relics from the Second Temple era that you can actually look at. Of course, we have the Western Wall, right, which is the outer retaining wall. But one of the few relics we have from the temple itself is two of these signs in Greek have actually been preserved and are available to be seen in museums today. The best version of it is actually in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum in Turkey. The second best version is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But you can see in Greek it says, non-Jews, Gentiles not allowed past this point, uh, on penalty of death. And it was preserved. And so now, and, and of course, right? And so on the one hand, Gentiles were invited into the temple. On the other hand, they had to, there had to be a point at which it was clear that only Jews can proceed. Now, to be fair, not even once the Jewish people go past that wall, there's another wall point at which only Kohanim can proceed, right? And there's, only, and there's another point at which only the high priest on the holiest day of the year can continue, right? So there's this notion that there's different levels of sanctity of the temple that different peoples were allowed to enter. But this Soreg wall in particular, which served no defensive purpose, but served as a spiritual statement, really bothered the Greeks, really bothered the people who wanted to make all of humanity into one underneath, under their Greek culture. And so when they took over the temple, they didn't touch anything that was part of the structure except for this wall. And they made 13 breaches in this wall. And the Hashwanayim, when they retook it, they fixed it. And that is what it means when we say Ufartu Chomot Migdalai. They breached the walls of our towers of the temple to make a statement that there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference in role and responsibility that they have towards manifesting uh, God's will in the world. Everybody is the same, right? Everybody, uh, we're all, we should all just assimilate and, and mix together. And that's what the Ma'usur is referring to. Now, why any speculation on why the number 13? Why did they make 13 breaches? What's the significance of the number 13? 13 bar mitzvah, okay. Nice. Why? I'm sorry? 13 attributes of mercy, that you said, very good. 13 is a very important number in Judaism, Larry. Oh, interesting. Twelve tribes plus one for the, for, the, for the converts who choose to join the Jewish people. Very nice. 
Right? You could also say Ephraim and Menashe can be two, so that you have 13 there. There's actually a Rashi in Devarim on that note of the 13 that talks about uh, Matizio, who started the great revolt against the, uh, the Greeks. He had, he had 12, um, it talks about 12 sons. We don't know all their names, we know some of their names, but 12 sons plus one, that's another option. Echad, right, the notion that God is one. Right During this time, everyone was worshiping multiple gods except the Jewish people. Echad, the gematria, the numerical equivalent, is 13, right? Aleph, Ches, Dalit is 13. Um, another, another idea I saw quoted is that if you add up, if you take our four mothers, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, count the letters in those names, they add up to 13. And remarkably, if you take Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and count those letters, they also add up to 13. Right? So what that means, I don't really know. But the number 13 is very, very significant. <laughs> right? Clearly very significant. Uh, I did see, I, I will say, and this is, um, uh, Mrs. Bleich, this is what you're saying, that um, there is a relatively contemporary uh, work called the Orga del Yahu, where he talks about the 13 attributes of mercy of God. And the Jewish people, right, there's a verse that says, Zekhelivanveu that this is my God and I will emulate him. That's one understanding, to emulate God. We're supposed to look at the 13 attributes of God and emulate him. God is merciful. We should be merciful to each other, right? God is gracious. We should do that, et cetera, that kind of thing. And so what he understands is that the, the, the Maccabees, the Hashemunayim, when they retook the temple, they decreed that after we fix these 13 breaches, we should then bow and praise God and submit ourselves and vow to emulate him um, when we see these 13 breaches. So all of that is to say, and uh, with this I'll conclude, is that this Sorig is a wall that came, comes up roughly only three feet tall, right? So on the one hand, so we Jewish people live in this interesting space. On the one hand, we invite, we ourselves are part of the greater humanity in the world, right? We're proud of that. We li we've lived in every society in the world, and we continue to interact with people of all types. On the other hand, in order to maintain our distinct identity, we have to build a wall. It doesn't have to be a tall wall, right? But it has to be there. And as soon as that wall is gone, that's when you lose your sense of identity to the detriment of the entire world because the world is a better place when our people are fulfilling our mission. And so Hanukkah, when we light this menorah, when we sing Ma'us Sur, is an opportunity to figure out, each person on their own, what their own personal soreg woven wall could be. Uh, how to do that, how to maintain our distinct identity um, we could look over the wall, we could talk to people over the wall, we can interact with people over the wall, but make sure that that wall is still there so that we can be the brightest possible light to humanity. That's what I have to say. Any questions, comments? Thank you. Yes. Yo, what's the question about them? The question is, so the part of the Hanukkah story we don't like talking about is that the, 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 the Antiochus and the Greeks were really incited and supported by Jews who had turned their backs on our tradition. And they were as much the villains, if not more, than the Greeks. So what happened to those people after the Jews retook the temple? Is that the question? So the sad story of Hanukkah, the part, you know, Hanukkah is a moment in time when we celebrate the Jews retook the temple, but they didn't hold it for that long. That's the part of the story not a lot of people don't know. They lost it not too long after, again. And then it took another bunch of years. I think four out of the five sons were killed before they retook it again. Um, but there was a fortress in Jerusalem called the Acre Fortress that these people um, hold up in. Many Jews who were not strong enough to resist the Greeks 
um, and were on their side, as soon as the tide turned, they, they rejoined the Jewish people and they were welcomed back, then they were welcomed back. Um, and um, you know, I assume the vast majority came back to their, to their tradition. But others who were, who were um, you know, more militantly Hellenistic, they left, they left Judea, they went to other places. Yeah, Antioch or whatever these cities were. Yes? That's a great question. The oil question. Is there historical evidence of the of the oil part of the story? If you look at, at the Al Hanisim prayer that we say in Shemona Esrei, it doesn't say anything about the oil. Interestingly, it focuses on the military victory, right? A cement, many, a few against the many. Uh, I'm not aware of uh, any historical evidence. It's 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 preserved in Jewish tradition, but I don't know of any contemporary um, non-Jewish report of it. It's a great great question. Yeah. Okay. And that it was the same cruise that was hidden in the base of Victor. Very nice. Yeah, I haven't heard that. That's great. Beautiful. Yes, Ed. Going back to the first story, Santa yeah. Claus. Yeah. <laughs> My second cousin, and was four or five years old, went to downtown Rochester with her mother, saw Santa Claus, got up on his lap, and explained to her why she didn't like celebrate Christmas and my Hanukkah was important and that Santa Claus didn't have a clue. <laughs> I didn't have a clue about Hanukkah, you mean? I think he went home and went to bed. That's <laughs> funny. I don't know if any of you here are old enough to, to, to have been here when Rabbi Noah Weinberg of Asia Torah came to visit. Apparently he came to Atlanta once and he used to recount how in the Atlanta airport, several it was around this time of year, several people came over to him asking for pictures with Santa Claus. <laughs> he, did, he did have that kind of look. You know. Yeah. Uh, any, any other comments? Any other questions? No. Okay, well, wishing you all happy Hanukkah. We should gather together. Um, yes. Thank you. There are extra flower bouquets that you're invited to take home with you. Um, thank you, Mrs. Berkowitz, for organizing that. And uh, thank you all for coming. Ha happy Hanukkah. Everyone should be healthy. We should gather for happy occasions. Thank you very much.